This uh, or these are a few of Jesus' words. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Sell everything and follow me. Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last first. Jesus was not unclear about the cost to follow him. These words and images that he used during his life and then the life that he lived ultimately leading him to his own death shows that a life of following Jesus is a costly life. You may have heard the phrase, the cost of discipleship. Living a life of following Jesus is powerless. It is a called to lay down everything that you have and trust him to do what he's going to do with it. And the original hearers of Revelation, of this book that we're in right now, and fast forward 2,000 years and our ears today, we need answers to this question. Why would anyone want that life? How is something that is that costly and that much of a, what feels like a downer of a life. Why would anybody want that? Why would, if Jesus is who he said he is, why would the son of God himself do that? And then why would I want to do anything like that? Because the original hearers of this book that we're studying right now, they were not the power brokers of their day. In fact, the power brokers of their day hated the early Christian church. They were imprisoned. They were socially ostracized. They had their power, their land, their money stripped away because they would not recant and bow the knee to Caesar. In fact, that's where John finds himself as he receives these visions that he then writes in this book. And what we've seen over these few weeks that we've been studying so far is one of Jesus' cautions to his people is that in this costly life of following me, you are going to be tempted to compromise. You're going to be tempted to sway away from all of the pain <laughs> that following Jesus can cause sometimes, be swayed towards wealth. Be swayed towards ease. Be swayed towards comfort. And Jesus has been constantly sort of re-navigating, redirecting, being our ballast, being our bumpers in the bowling alley that will call us back to this narrow way that it means to follow him. 
Last week especially, I think is probably the most vivid image so far that gives us a little bit of the why. Why is it worth it to live this kind of a life? Because the picture that we found in Revelation 5 is this picture of, a God, of God who is on his throne as a lion, describing himself as one who is powerful and holy and glorious, and yet also one who is like a lamb, gentle and humble and lowly. And the life of Jesus is one where all of his power, all of the power of the triune Godhead is snuffed out for the sake of folks like you and me. And in the same way, that is the life that he is calling us into. That's his why. His why of demonstrating what true power looks like in flesh is love. Because why did Jesus do all of that work for us? He says it in his own words. Greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down their life for their friends. Self-sacrifice, laying down of your power, this life that we saw Jesus live, and we now have the ability to live with his spirit dwelling in us, is a life, ultimately, of love. And so maybe the why this morning of why would I want to follow Jesus in this costly life of discipleship, of following him and living in his ways more and more. Maybe the why is, do you long to love the people in your life? Do you long to love your children? Do you long to love your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your friendships? Do you long to love your parents, your brothers, your sisters, your coworkers? Jesus is both providing the template and the power to do just that. And it's maybe not what we would expect. So let's go ahead and read. This is uh, arguably one of the most difficult passages in all of Revelation. So buckle your seatbelts, and let's do this thing. Adrian Peterson, Revelation 11, if you please. Then I was giving a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and that they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages 
and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because, because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood upon, upon their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. When they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven singing, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and was, for you have taken your great power and began to reign. The nation, oh, the, the word of our Lord. <laughs> <laughs> Praise be to God. Thank you. <laughs> so see, easy. To try to narrow our focus this morning, there's all kinds of things, all kinds of images that are flying as left and right as we read this passage. Let's focus on just one or two. These two witnesses that are found in verse 3, they first show up and they are then, they go through this crazy experience that we're going to, as best we can, plot the life of the ordinary Christian trying to follow Jesus. Or maybe as one who is outside and wondering what is the Christian life? What does it actually mean? to follow Jesus, if that's you this morning, to have the opportunity to see what exactly is the ordinary Christian life and how do we begin to grow and be invited into it. Because Jesus demonstrated the way of love in the way that he lived. And so as his witnesses in this image, we're just trying to testify that he's real and true and good and that we're experiencing his love then living it out in our way. So Christians bear witness then at least in these two ways. One of them we do actively, one of them we do passively. And these are going to be our two points. One, Christians bear witness to God's love by dying. Love dies. Secondly, that's the active one. Doesn't that sound fun? Secondly, here's the passive one. God resurrects. Love dies, God resurrects. So first, uh, it'd be helpful to orient us a little bit in where we find ourselves in the book today. We were in chapter 5 last week, as I mentioned. Now we're in chapter 11. As confusing as Revelation is, let's make it more confusing by also jumping all over the book. How does that sound? Okay, here's why we're doing it this way. Uh, we're jumping around Revelation because, okay, uh, when you were little, did you ever have one of those marble sets where you would put all the pieces together 
and there was like the tunnels and the slides, and you would build these like big marble construction things, and you'd drop the marble on top, and it would like go through all the things and land on the bottom. Yes, you with me? Okay, thank you for the thumbs up. Okay, uh, that's what's happening here. You remember one of those things that usually existed on, on those marble things was a big giant funnel. And the funnel, the, the funnel would start the marble spinning at the top, and then it would go deeper and deeper and deeper and start to get faster and faster and faster and faster until it goes through the hole in the bottom. That's what's happening in the book of Revelation. Revelation is not a chronological book. And so there are seven visions, and those seven visions are constantly rotating through these various themes that find themselves all the way from chapter 1 to chapter 22. And so instead of going all the way through them chronologically, because again, it's not a chronological book, we're instead picking seven themes and showing where in the book do these seven themes show up. So if you remember, they're all P's to help you remember. If you remember, the first one was perspective. What is Jesus' perspective on this world? Ultimately, we see he's sitting on his throne. He's perfectly content and happy. He has everything under control is his perspective. Secondly, we saw his presence, that Jesus is among these lampstands representing his churches. Jesus is on his throne, and he is near. And now, the past two weeks, we've been in paradox, meaning Jesus is on his throne. He's near to his church. Now, how is he going about this work? of governing and ruling and reigning over all things. He's doing so in this life that he has already lived of dying to himself so that others can live and calling his people into that same life, which is a paradox because it doesn't seem like dying would bring any kind of life. It seems like dying would just bring death. So, verse 1, we have this image of John, and he's being given a measuring rod. Now, here's another thing that may be helpful as you, I would encourage you, read this for yourself. I know we jumped into small groups this week. That may have been super intimidating to jump into Revelation 11 in your small groups this week. Anytime you get tripped up, anytime you get stuck, there is, if you have a Bible with cross references in it, like the little thing in the middle there, or maybe on the side margin, Follow those cross-references because every, there's no new information in Revelation. Every one of these images is being drawn from the Old Testament or from somewhere else as it has been spoken and revealed to the early church, either by Jesus or Peter or Paul or one of those. So this first image of a measuring rod is hearkening back to Zechariah 2. It is this image where Zechariah is given a vision of a man with a measuring line in this case. And he's told to measure around Jerusalem. Now, what is the purpose of him measuring around Jerusalem? God says in uh, verse 5 of Zechariah 2, he says, For I will be a wall of fire all around. So why is he having this measurement taking place? It's for the protection of the city. And so here we have this image again of a measuring rod. But here's the difference. Now there is no more city. There is no more. He says, measure the temple. Well, that's kind of confusing because there is no temple. This is happening somewhere around AD 96. AD 70, the Romans come into Jerusalem, sack Jerusalem, take the city over, 
take the temple down to its base. So why would we now have a revelation 20-some-odd years later that would say measure the temple? Well, here's where some of the New Testament imagery begins to inform some of our understanding. For in places like 2 Corinthians, uh, chapter 6, verse 16, we are a temple of the living God. 1 Peter 2 says, you are living stones being built up together in which God will dwell. And so we then are this temple. And this image is, I want protection around my people, the new temple. Protection from what? Let's go on down to verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. So these two witnesses have been given a job, and that job is to prophesy. If you have any familiarity with the Old Testament prophets, you know that this was not a glamorous job. This was not like being a late-night TV show host where you just got to say all of the most fun things all the time. This was more like being the guy at the vet's office that tells people the bad news that they have to put their dog down. Like, you're telling bad news to people all the time because prophets were speaking for God usually into scenarios that were bad. They were spoken into situations where they were calling God's people away from their sinful selves and back into a holy life. Uh, Jonah ran away from this call completely. Jeremiah, in his entire ministry, had a whopping two converts. Uh, John the Baptist was beheaded. Not a glamorous life to be a prophet here. And so God is saying, I am giving protection to my people because I am sending them out into this world to prophesy. And these witnesses are then said to have power. As we read through verse 5, fire will pour from their mouths. Verse 6, they will have power to shut the sky, which is kind of a pullback to Elijah when he prayed and it didn't rain. And the, the power to turn water into blood, hearkening back to Moses and the plagues in Egypt. All of these places of power that are being given for the sake of testifying to who God really is. So here's a question to bring this into your living room. What power do you have right now? What gifts do you have right now? What status, what ability, what talents, what circumstances do you find yourself in right now? Do you believe that every bit of that, all the good and all the bad, everything that you have been given and everything that you have not been given is a gift? All of life is grace, is what this passage is saying. So God's people have been showered with gifts. Truly, all people have been showered with this gift of life, with this gift of a variety of talents and abilities and skills and money and power and influence and all of those things. And Jesus is asking, what are you doing with that? Because naturally, what we're going to want to do is to take all of that and build a big fence around it and say, this is mine. You go have yours, I will have mine. And instead, 
he's calling us into a life of self-giving because as a gift, it is meant to be given away. Everything that we have is ultimately a little taste, a little smidge, a little sparkle of the multiplicity of glory that God is. And so how does your particular gifting, your particular skills, your particular financial situation, children, no children, married, unmarried, how are all of those things being leveraged for the sake of God and his kingdom this morning? That's the question that Jesus is asking. Now, just like witnesses are meant to testify to truth claims in court, again, what everything that we have is meant to do is to be like, exhibit A for why God exists and why Jesus' love is real, my life. Exhibit A, right here. And in the same way, for you, Jesus is calling all of us into that kind of a life. Okay, to finish up this thought, then verse 7, and when they have finished, this is the end goal. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. So you put in this good, hard, long life of showing everybody how great Jesus is, and what do you get for it? You die. That's both physical reality and metaphorical reality because what we know to be true is that if we, to give a gift is costly. For instance, uh, my 30th birthday party, going on 10 years ago, uh, Sarah threw me a surprise party. My kids were really little at the time, and we got one of the, it's Florida, so it's crazy hot. We got one of those bladder pools. and You know what a bladder pool is? It's like, has an inflatable thing on top, and you fill it up with a bunch of water, and it kind of like bulbs out in the side. It's like enough to get maybe two grown adults into. But we had three littles, and so we'd throw them in there, and they had a great time. I had just set this thing up, and I was having a birthday beverage sitting in my bladder pool, which is kind of at the very back of my backyard that had zero trees in the whole thing. It was getting baked by the sun. And all of a sudden, I look over my shoulder at my, the gate beside my fence, or on the right side of my house, and there's people streaming into my fence as I have no shirt on, sitting in this weird little kid pool. <laughs> and they, they start streaming in, but they're not, they don't even talk to me. They don't say hi. It's like I'm invisible. And what they start doing is they're bringing in tables, and they're bringing in chairs, and they're bringing in uh, patio lights. And then my father-in-law shows up, and he has this big giant pot and a burner and a whole bunch of like shrimp and corn and broth and all kinds of things to make a low country boil. What is happening is a surprise party is happening. All of the, all of the furniture in my living room was taken out of my living room and put in various places around my 1,500 square foot house. The living room and the patio were completely stripped of other things. The tables went inside my living room. Patio lights were strung from my ceiling. And we had a low country boil in my living room with all my friends. Uh, Brian Sutherland, who is a local musician in Lakeland, where we were at the time, who actually tours around here some now too, 
he played, all, he comes streaming in and sets up on my patio and plays a set on my patio while we're eating under the patio lights in my living room. Sarah had planned for months for this thing. I still have yet, she's a way better gift giver than me. I've yet to match that. Giving gifts is costly to your time, to your effort, to your like mental capacity, to have to have a mind full of someone else then means your mind is not full of all of your stuff and all of your needs. And that can leave us in a very vulnerable place. Because if love is if Jesus is calling us into that kind of a costly love, then a question that we have to wrangle with is this. Who will take care of me? Like, Jesus, if you're calling me to lay everything that I have down for the sake of another person, and you're calling me to do that at church, and you're calling me to do that in my workplace. And you're calling me to do that in my family. And you're calling me to do that in my friend group. All of these places, you're calling me to lay down all of my wants and my needs for the sake of someone else living. To use all of my power and ability for the sake of making somebody else great. Then who's going to take care of me? And I'm really not trying to say this tritely or with any kind of sarcasm. That's a fair question for us to ask. And this passage answers it. Because our job is the dying. God's job is the resurrecting. Because if you're like me, and if you've had a week like I've just had, I've heard this call. I've been thinking about this sermon all week. And even still, in my heart, I feel this constant tension between the things that I want to do and the things that I have to do. The dishes I have to do and the things I would rather be doing like football. And all of this tension in my life and in all of our lives all the time between the things that we are being called into for the sake of serving one another and the things that we would just rather do. Have you ever had this thought? I take care of other people all day. I take care of my kids, or I take care of my team at work, or I take care of my friends, or I take care of my significant other. Who's going to take care of me? I have nothing more to give. And what we can tend to do in that is we can then start to say, well, I'm going to give 90 and I'm going to keep 10%. I'm going to give 85 and I'm going to keep 15. Or, like me this weekend, you can just become a cynical grump about it and like grin and do all the things. I'm going to do the dishes. I'm going to take out the dog who has to go to the bathroom. I'm going to take care of all these chickens that we have now. And there's more to that story. And I'm not going to get to sit my butt on the couch. Okay. I want to introduce you to an image that has been very formative and helpful for me over the years as we come to a close. Uh, this is an image that Paul Miller, who wrote A Praying Life, a book that we've been talking about for the past year or so, uh, that a good many of our leaders have read, 
while he was studying what it was like for Jesus to love another person, he noticed this kind of a contour to love. And he calls it the J-curve. Here's the J-curve. This is what we know to be true. Jesus lived this kind of a life. The Godhead fully constrained himself into human form, being born as a little embryo, growing up and having to wear diapers. God wore diapers. He spends 30 years in obscurity. Nobody thought he was important. Nobody thought he was special. And then when he does finally come on the scene, when he does finally start prophesying, as it were, speaking for his father, what does he get? He gets confusion. He gets concern. He gets a bunch of kind of half-hearted friends who eventually would betray and leave him. He gets guys who are willing to compromise in the places that he is not. He ultimately gets betrayed. He gets slandered. He gets tried falsely. And he winds up strung up on a cross, slowly suffocating to death under the weight of his own body. This is the descent of love. This is the shape of Jesus' love for you and for me. That is now the life that he is calling you and I into. The right side. We die in the same way that he has died. Philippians 2 says this beautifully. You can read that later. Have this same mind among you, the same mind that drove Jesus, the love that drove Jesus to lay down himself so that we, half-hearted lovers that we are, could find our way back to God and be loved and lavished by him in such a way that it could begin to actually change how we love. In and of ourselves, if we just try to do the right side without the power of Jesus, we will have nothing to give. We will wind up depleted with absolutely nothing to fill us back up because God has to resurrect if we are going to continue to give. God has to fill up if we are going to continue to pour out. Verse 11, but after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood back up on their feet. These witnesses have died for three and a half days. They've been the laughing stock. Nobody has given them a proper burial. They're lying there on the ground and everyone around them is saying, good, I'm glad they're gone. And then God comes. And as you lay your life down for the sake of another person, for the sake of your children, for the sake of your spouse, for the sake of your boss or those under you at work, God will breathe into that new life, new resurrection, new joy, new hope that if you had just tried on your own, you would not have been able to cultivate. Jesus lay lifeless in the tomb for three days and waited for God to resurrect him, waited for his father to blow that new life back into him. Have you ever seen Star Wars when... uh, 
Oh, sweet. That's good. Uh, have you ever seen Star Wars when Yoda dies because Luke keeps asking him questions? <laughs> have you ever felt like that? Like, I've given everything I can. I have nothing. I am lifeless after giving all that I have. I find many evenings I have more and more found myself, especially as I get a little older, coming to the end of the day and being like, I have no more cares to give. I have nothing. Two things are probably true at that moment. One, good work. You have laid your life down well, if you're feeling that. And you have positioned yourself in a place where, notice it's not the U curve. It's not just sort of like getting you back to where you were. It's the J curve, meaning that resurrection life, resurrection hope, resurrection joy, resurrection reality, watching those places where God works that we couldn't manufacture, bringing new life in your kids as you serve them, bringing new life in your marriage as you serve each other, bringing new life in your workplace in ways that otherwise you would become isolated and grumpy with each other. Instead, when you lay down your life, God blows on that and raises things from the dead. That's the adventure of the Christian life is to watch and to wait, to lay down and trust that God will blow in your life and raise things up to new life. So to close, uh, we've been praying for Iran the past month. Emily mentioned that earlier. You can grab the cards in the back. There is an insane revival happening right now in Iran. In 1979, the Islamic Revolution turned Iran into uh, a, an Islamic Republic. Christians became under fire. They became persecuted uh, like never before, or at least not in the recent past. Missionaries were kicked out. Evangeliz evangelism was outlawed. Bibles were banned. Pastors and leaders were jailed and killed. And people feared that Christianity would completely die out and be snuffed out in the country. Instead, here's what happened. There are more people in Iran that have become believers in the past 20 years than in the past 13 centuries. Why? Two things. One, when people naturally live a life of power, seeking to reign over another, they don't go J-curve. They just go from life to more life, from power to more power from money to more money, from fame to more fame. That's the life that I want. And yet eventually when you watch people lead like that, when you watch people live like that, when the people of Iran who for the past year have been saying to, uh, have been protesting for women's rights, they're saying something's not right here. And yet I see these Christians continuing to serve and love and give and take whatever comes to them. That seems way more legit. I want in on what they have. It's that whole Peter thing. Just live a life that demands explanation. That someone else would say, what do you have? How do you do that? Last thing. The call may feel like, okay, so now go die for Jesus. Go get out there, tiger. Don't miss the image way back to verse 3. This image of witnesses, what are they clothed in? They're clothed in sackcloth. They are clothed, sackcloth is an image of repentance. 
And so we are not moving into this week we're about to have expecting perfection out of our service to others. We are recognizing all of our weakness and we are bringing all of that weakness. That's part of what we're laying before Jesus, saying, I don't have what it takes to love this week. I don't have what it takes to lay down my life. I don't have the courage. I don't have the passion. I don't have the energy. Will you fill my dead bones? And then let's see what the Lord does with it. Let's pray. So, Father, I pray that you would catch us right now in whatever that one place, that one relationship where we are just experiencing nothing but dying to ourselves for the sake of another. That place where we feel most lifeless right now in our pouring out. Jesus, I pray that you would bring by your Spirit's power resurrection. Father, blow a new wind, blow new life, new joy, new hope, new love into these places that feel most dead to us. Do that for your glory's sake, in Jesus' name, amen.